question from those that reach out to us in need are, what happens if I cannot work because of my mental illness? What are my benefits? What are my rights? Um, if, if, I, if I don't have money because I can't work, do I have rights to get some sort of income? Not to mention that so many people don't even realize that this is out there, that there are benefits like that that exist. Today we have the absolute best guest to answer these questions. Jeffrey Rabin is an attorney practicing for over 30 years in Park Ridge, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. He specializes in disability benefits. And in 1988, he founded Jeffrey A. Rabin & Associates and has represented clients nationwide at all levels of the administrative process and in the federal courts. Please see our Behind Our Door Facebook page for the link to Jeffrey's bio, and you will see he is the expert on this crucial topic. So grateful to have you join us. Welcome, Jeffrey Raven. Welcome. Thank you. This is a pleasure, and it's kind of exciting to be able to talk about this in a podcast format. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of our Behind Our Door families struggle with Social Security and SSI and SSDI and what does it mean and how to so maybe we should start there. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, absolutely. Start. Maybe you should just explain what each of those acronyms stands for. And as I said, some people don't realize that there are even benefits out there like yeah. this. So uh, starting from that. So first, Nancy, from your introduction, let's limit our discussion for at least now to Social Security disability programs and Great. Uh, claims that are available against the Social Security Administration. And there are basically two. The first one is called Title II of the Social Security Act, or Social Security Disability Insurance Benefits, or SSDI. Okay. The other program is Title XVI of the Social Security Act. It's called Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. Two different programs, but both have the same medical requirements. The medical requirement for both programs requires that we be able to prove that our clients are suffering from medically-based symptoms which so impact their day-to-day -day function that for at least a period of a year, they'd be unable to perform any type of full-time work activity available in the national economy. Now, I said that really carefully mm -hmm. because I did not say that I have to prove my clients have a medical problem. People with bipolar work, people with depression work, mm -hmm. people with cancer work, people mm -hmm. with multiple sclerosis work. So Social Security disability claims are not focused on the diagnosis, but instead they're focused on the symptoms from those diagnoses and how those symptoms impact this particular person's ability to sustain function in a work setting. And, and one year is the designated amount of time. They could not work for a year. The symptoms have to last at a disabling level, totally disabling level, for a period that has lasted 12 months or is expected to last 12 months or is expected to result in death within 12 months. This kind of eliminates the uh, guy that goes skiing in Park City, Utah, and tumbles down the hill and fractures his leg and can't work for a couple of months because he had surgery. Mm -hmm. That's not a Social Security disability mm -hmm. question. Right. Um, this is for people with long-term chronic medical problems who just can't sustain work and need help. Wow. 
Yeah. See, there when you're when you're giving me the definitions, it makes a lot more sense um, because I think people struggle with the the difference between them. Then, what is SSDI versus SSI? Okay, so we can talk about that. So they both have the same medical test. Right. Let's first talk about SSDI because it's the more comprehensive program, Social Security Disability Insurance. It's an insurance plan, and it's bought and paid for just like your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance or your health insurance, except you pay for it by working and having what used to be called FICA taxes, and Mm -hmm. they can't see me on the podcast, but I have enough gray in my beard that I remember (laughs) FICA. It doesn't say that anymore. It says OASDI, Old Age Survivors and Disability Insurance, and then there's a second line called Medicare. And combined, those are your FICA payments under the Social Security Act. The boss matches those. So every dollar that's taken out of your paycheck for FICA The boss is reaching into her purse. She's matching that dollar for dollar, and the money gets sent off to the Social Security Trust Funds, and there's three of them. The big one that eats up most of the money is called Social Security Retirement, and that's the one that pays our seniors, our parents, our aunts and uncles, our grandparents, uh, monthly benefits because they reach that age. Mm -hmm. Then there's a little one off to the side, and you know, little is in the billions, so it's all relative, mm-hmm. um, called Social Security Disability Insurance, and another little one off on the other side called Medicare. And that's how these programs are funded. We work, taxes are taken out, the FICA payments are taken out of our paycheck. They go up into the trust funds and then are immediately paid out. So people you know who are getting survivor benefits or retirement benefits or disability benefits are actually getting the money that we sent in last month. Mm-hmm. And then whatever is left over in the trust funds that isn't used for current beneficiaries at the end of each month is then loaned at an absurdly low rate to the U.S. government. Okay. To qualify for SSDI, you have to meet a two-part FICA test. First, you had to have worked and paid FICA taxes for 40 quarters in your lifetime. Second, you must have worked and paid FICA taxes for five of the 10 years prior to the date you became totally disabled. Their lingo, 20 quarters of the 40 quarters Mm -hmm. preceding the onset of disability. So let's take an example. Um... I put on shoes to come here today because usually I walk around my home in my flip-flops. <laughs> I'm a big klutz. I walk out of here. I fall and bang my head. You run me over to um, Weiss, and they say, now I have suffered this terrible brain injury, and I'm eligible for benefits. The first thing they do is pull my earnings record at Social Security and say, has Jeff worked for at least 40 quarters in his lifetime? I've got more than 40 years, so we're good there. Then the tricky part is they pull my earnings record from 2011 to 2021, the 10 years prior to the year I became totally disabled, Mm -hmm. and look to see if I've worked and paid FICA taxes for at least 20 quarters during that 10-year period. If I only worked 18 quarters or only worked three years or Mm -hmm. I worked for cash and never paid the man a dime, Mm -hmm. I'll have screwed myself because I wouldn't have purchased the insurance. Mm -hmm. So that's SSDI, totally disabled, worked and paid FICA taxes. 
SSI is a little different. SSI actually came about in 1971, I believe, um, as a result of a series of pictorial articles in Look and Life magazines that were, ran a series of articles on the difference in living conditions between the elderly poor in the South who were living in shanties and lean-tos and literally using cat food tins for saucers and plates, mm-hmm. and the elderly poor in the North who were getting some help from their cities and, and local governments. Congress thought elderly eating out of cat food tins was a bad thing, so they enacted SSI for the elderly poor, and then expanded it to help the disabled poor. So SSI has two requirements. First, total disability, the same medical test that we just spoke about. And second, the claimant must be indigent. And indigent for these purposes means less than $2,000 in non-excludable resources and no money coming in other than possibly TANF benefits. Mm So non-excludable resources, you're allowed a house if you're living in it. You're allowed one car because you have to go to the doctor and the pharmacist. They won't value the clothes on the claimant's back, but they will look for bank accounts, savings accounts, IRAs, 401Ks, 203Bs, cash value life insurance, Mm -hmm. poorly drafted family trusts, any asset that can be converted to cash. Even if you have to pay a tax and a penalty to access it, counts against the $2,000 limitation. So this is a program for people who are permanently and totally disabled and with very, very limited financial resources, um, starting with the next checks for December of 2020 to go into 2023, it'll be $941 a month. Realize that leaves that totally disabled, independent person 25% below the poverty level Um, in the United States. Ouch. I was thinking, who could live off of $941 a month? And and you think about that, and it's so true. And the the pity is that there are bills in Congress to change that. That $2,000 number hasn't changed since 1979. Oh, my God. And there's bills to make it at least enough money to match the the poverty level and to raise that $2,000 number but in the last couple of years, the way the Senate has been, those bills haven't stood a chance. Yeah, that's so sad. It really is. What a system. I know. But but you can own a home and a car and get SSI is what you were saying. You can own a home as long as you're living in it. Yeah, they don't expect people to uh, force them into homelessness. Oh. Mm-hmm. But oh. what they do, and that's this affects nice. a lot of the people listening to this podcast, is they penalize parents of adult children that they allow to live in their house. Yeah, I've Because that if that p- child is not paying rent, mm-hmm. that free room and board is considered income, and there's an automatic one-third reduction to the SSI, which to me is one of the most absurd mm-hmm. rules because, because it penalizes parents for wanting to help their children. Yeah, and, and that adult child really could need the support mentally and physically to be with the parents. I mean, this isn't some kind of... You've represented hundreds and yeah. hundreds of them oh, over yeah. the years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had the, that exact situation. My son was 18. We filed for SSI, and that's exactly what they told me. They counted my income against him. Well, no, that's different, so let's talk about okay. that. <laughs> because that actually leads into a whole other series of discussions, and that's a concept called deeming. So deeming says 
What belongs to me belongs to my wife, Sherry. What belongs to Sherry belongs to me. And what would belong to the two of us would belong to any minor children if we still had them. Mm -hmm. Where this becomes a major issue is in two areas. First, many, many families struggle with severely disabled children, things like spinal muscular atrophy, SMA, but they can't get help because one or both parents are working, and even mm -hmm. if they don't make a big income, deeming really <laughs> makes them ineligible um, at a very low level of income. The bigger issue, where, and literally in my office, we've probably averaged two to three calls a week, so for 30-something years, stay-at-home, and it's usually moms, although sometimes it's dads, but stay-at-home moms in the United States get screwed because they don't work, and I'm using air quotes around right. that, but there's no and not paying like into that. the system. Mm -hmm. They're 45, 48, the kids are maybe in college, and they get hit by a car, or they become struck with multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. They come to me, I can't get them SSDI because they've not paid into the FICA system mm -hmm. for five of the last 10 years. Husband's income is deemed to them, so they can't get SSI, and therefore the system won't help them. And if the husband, you know, once the last administration took out the mandate for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, you've got two or three kids in college, you don't pay for health insurance on your totally healthy, strong, vibrant 48-year-old wife. Right. If the boss doesn't pay for it, it's, you know, 1000 bucks a month, 800 mm -hmm. bucks a month. And so these women are uninsured and we can't help them get benefits. And then just to I tell the story in my public speaking, husband divorces her. She's sick. She's not fun. A huge percentage of our clients are divorced because of the stress medical mm -hmm. issues place on the marriage. But she gets some money in a divorce settlement. He's been working a long time. If it's more than $2,000, she still can't get SSI. Oh, so the yeah. only way now that totally disabled, divorced, single woman gets help if she either does some very expensive or extensive estate planning, or more realistically, she cracks into, say, an IRA she might have gotten from her ex-husband, um, pays the taxes, pays penalties, spends it down below $2,000, and then we'll give her 941 bucks a month and some food stamps to live on. Wow. This, this angers me when we hear our government leaders talk about family values, family mm -hmm. values. Yeah, right. But when there's legislation that says, let's put some value on a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom or yeah. let them In pay into the system, age, I mean, the answer is always no, because that's expanding entitlements, which it is not. But <sighs> that's how it's viewed in so you must have you must have a lot of frustrated people come in to talk to you, hoping that they will get something out of this meeting and People just aren't aware that these these guidelines are like they are. So I'll only talk about my practice because we have our own standards and every lawyer practices differently or even non-attorney rep. But we turn away about 70% of the people wow. that contact oh, us, gosh. but usually for a different reason, which we can discuss in a bit. But what we make sure to do is anybody that calls our office will either speak with Kelly, who's been with me for many years and is our director of intake or myself and they'll get an explanation mm -hmm. so they'll walk away with the knowledge of okay this is why i'm not going to get help now or this is what i need to do in order to get help in the future 
and we at least give them the time to have a plan. Yeah. It's very important. It's very tough. But yeah. Wow. Well, I can only speak for myself that it was very overwhelming trying to navigate the system and having a, a child that has mental health issues. He obviously was not going to jump in and help me. Um, I was a single parent, so self-reliant. And I, I didn't even know the first place to start. So for our family, behind our door family out there, can you kind of explain, like, where do, where should you start if you think you're child or somebody that you're a caregiver for needs assistance. So that actually comes to leads to another point. So the answer is you start with your medical people. Okay. Because these are medical cases. So when a new client comes to me and Nancy, I'll mm -hmm. I'll say to Nancy, Nancy, what you say, I, I have a bad back, I have chronic pain, I'm depressed. None of that is evidence that can win the case because you want the money and Social Security gives you no credibility, therefore. What your husband, partner, best friend, oldest daughter, priest says, none of that is evidence because they like you. They want to see you get the benefits. The only evidence that Social Security will ever focus on in a disability claim are the treating records of the treating specialists. So in a mental health case, that means a psychiatrist paired with a good therapist or alternatively, a good PhD or PsyD psychologist. And you start there because if they say, you can work, you're just really not motivated, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to get benefits. Yeah, which is the gray area for so much of this. You know, they can't see it and they, you know, people have these assumptions and I can just imagine. But... I, there's also, I was going to ask you this before you went into that, so many of the people that I've you know, referred to, to you for information, et cetera, they come back saying, I have to have, you know, about, let's say their adult son or daughter, they have to have see, been seeking therapy for X amount of time. What is that? Um, what, you know, and, and somebody has to have a cooperative son or daughter in this case for this ex particular example, um, that they have to be continually, actively seeking therapy, therapeutic help from a credible resource. Licensed. Licensed. And, but, but what's that amount of time? So there's no, guide, there's no written guideline from Social oh, Security. So it's really, it's, okay. it's, it's really just experience. So what I tell clients is when you're starting with a new doctor, psychiatrist, therapist, rheumatologist, it doesn't matter, don't ask them about disability until you've seen them at least three times. Because no doctor wants a new patient who's only there to say, I'm trying to mm -hmm. prove I'm failing. Right. It's a boring patient, and it's not why the doctor's practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. But after you go the first time, and they adjust the medicines, and you go the second time, and they're trying, and you show up, and you keep your appointment for the third time, the doctor senses you're fairly motivated towards treatment. And then you can say, hey, I'm thinking about playing, applying for disability. What do you think? And if the doctor says, no, I don't think you're eligible or I don't think you should, then you have to factor that in. And what is your doctor-patient relationship? And are you really clearly expressing to the doctor what's going on in your life? 
Um, or you say, okay, I'll try to work. And then if you fail, then at least the doctor sees you've tried. Mm -hmm. If the doctor, your evidence. Yeah, and just for the doctor's sake, for mm -hmm. the comfort of the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, if the doctor says, hey, yeah, I don't think you can work right now. You should go for it. Then the first step is to contact an experienced representative. It used to be, if we had had this podcast 10 or 15 years ago, I'd have said, go to Social Security and file and then call the rep when you get denied. That's what I got told. I actually think under today's practice and the way things work at Social Security now, that that's terrible advice. And the reason is this. The conversation we're having right now mm -hmm. on these lines, I have face-to-face -face with every single new client. There's only two of us in my office that I allow actually interview new clients, myself and Susan, who's been with me also many years. And we teach clients, hey, you have to go to the psychiatrist. If you're only seeing a psychiatrist, you have to have a therapist. If you have fibromyalgia and getting pain medications from your family doctor, that's not going to work. You have to go to the rheumatologist. And by the way, the rulings say the, fibro the rheumatologist has to be doing tender point testing. Or if you have MS and you're going to the neurologist once a year, Social Security doesn't consider a doctor seeing you once a year to be serious medical mm -hmm. treatment. And the earlier I get involved, prior to them filing, mm -hmm. for example, the more impact I can have on the outcome of the case because they have more time to treat. Right, right now, the slowest level, and you talk about frustrated clients. This is the yeah. worst frustration right now. The slowest level is the first one since the pandemic. And it's now eight months before Social Security even assigns an adjudicator to look at a case wow. in Illinois yeah. at the initial level. Wow. Um, so if I'm at least helping the client generate evidence in the doctor's offices during that time, we're building the case so that by the time we get to see the, the administrative law judge, we'll have a good record. So as opposed to what you were told years ago, that was right years ago. Yeah. But I, I still hear Lawyers do that, but mm -hmm. I think it's really very, very poor advice. So you have to have a, a doctor or clinician or somebody who has a, a license and degree on on board. What, what uh, have to have to is a it's a big <laughs> word, um, but the answer is yeah. I mean, Social Security will send you out for a consultative examination mm -hmm. if the medical is unclear, but they just in in. Kansas City, a law firm just filed a class action lawsuit against Social Security because the consultative examiner they used there was so poor and so, I don't want to say incompetent, but his reports were so lacking. Mm -hmm. And I've just talked to a group of lawyers in Knoxville, Tennessee, who aren't looking to file a lawsuit against the Social Security, but they are going to set up a series of meetings because only one doctor is doing the bulk of this uh, consultative exams there. And he does a 15-minute or a 10-minute in and out, and he's not going to find fatigue or mm -hmm. pain or impaired mm -hmm. concentration. And uh, so the answer is yes, if you really want a realistic chance of winning and increase your chance to something that would be more than, gosh, I'm going to hope, you have to be treating with a doctor, and that doctor has to be supportive. Now, in, and in fairness to Social Security, you are right when you said you can't see these things. I can't prove pain. Mm -hmm. There's no scientific test that proves pain. And well, plus, it's even harder with mental illness. Yeah, because you can't see right. it. Right. You, you, you can't see it and you can't mm -hmm. measure it.
Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I feel like um, that's the side of it. When people call us for resources about this very topic, it's, um, it's that gray area of what you cannot see. But uh, what about, and I just take this from all the, the people, the calls and the people who have um, come through the door with this question. It's known that they can apply several times if it doesn't work the first time. I mean, there's people who say, I applied seven times. Did you apply several times for your son, Julie? Yes. How many times? Probably five or six or seven. Yeah, so. I'm amazed by that. I mean, that is like, that is just exhausting to even think about. I mean, it's such a frustrating subject matter. These families, these individuals, I cannot even imagine getting that negative answer and saying, I'm going to apply again. Is this something that is just the usual practice? Do you have clients that apply, okay, this is your seventh time? All right, so let's use terms appropriately now. Okay. Now I have to be a little bit on the lawyer side. Okay. So you start a case by a, a filing an application. If that application is denied, it's called the initial denial, you have 60 days to appeal. It's not mm -hmm. a new case. You're appealing that application. It's called reconsideration. If you're denied at reconsideration, you have the right to appeal again within 60 days and ask for a hearing before a Social Security Administrative Law Judge. And that's the most critical step in the whole process because it's the only time you get to see and talk to the decision maker. Hmm. If you lose in front of the Administrative Law Judge, then there's appeals to the Appeals Council in federal court. Now, what some people do is they drop their case after they get their first denial. They get frustrated, they rip the letter up, they mm -hmm. stomp their feet, or they go and try to work, mm -hmm. um, and then they want to apply again. You can, for SSI, file repeatedly. Um, you lose all the back benefits, but unless there's some obscure technical reason, we can reopen old applications, but that's not typical. So you would lose back benefits. For SSDI, there's time limits. Mm. Because remember, Social Security Disability Insurance, it's an insurance plan. Well, once you stop working, you stop paying premiums. Right. As you stop paying premiums, there comes a point in time, and it depends upon how long you've worked, but it's usually for somebody with a long work history, about four to five years out, your coverage ends. And if you're still filing and not getting final decisions um, and you're four or five years out, you're going to end up not being able to file anymore. The key is not to do that. The key is start your case right. Mm -hmm. Make sure you understand what the theory is in your case. What is Social Security actually going to be looking from you in order to approve the case? File it at that point and then appeal it all the way through the system. Now, there have been times we've gone all the way through the administrative law judge and the appeals council and still lost, and we have felt very strongly. Is that oftentimes? I mean, what's... We'll come back to those percentages okay. in a second. Okay. Um, but Just then curious. we'll take the case on to federal court, and if we sue the commissioner of Social Security in the United States District Court, at that point we can often file a new application. And what frequently happens is while the case is still pending in U.S. federal court, we win on the new application. Mm, oh, and then there's all wow. these procedural things you have to do. Um, so 
that happens fairly often um, if we lose. But again, it depends on how long since they last worked, how long since they last paid into the system, or is it SSI, and then it doesn't matter, and we can file over and over again. Um, There's a lot of legal technicalities that have to be looked at, um, but it can be done. So does it does it vary state to state? Because my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that every state has different Social Security laws, and therefore, if you're moving from state to state, you have to reapply in that state. Absolutely not. No, that's wrong. Oh, this is a federal oh. program, and the rules are the same nationwide. They're interpreted slightly differently, so it's kind of like not surprising that some of the Western states have lower approval ratings than, say, some of the Midwestern or Eastern states. Um, but that's part of the type of people that they hire for um, adjudicators and administrative law judges. But all of that is federal. So everything is federally controlled. It's a nationwide program. The payments are the same whether I live in Illinois or in Florida. Um, and like Julie's saying, if you start in Illinois and then you move, you can continue. I have that all the time. Mm-hmm. I have, in fact, oh, that's good one know. of the nice things about technology is I've had employees that move, but since everything is now in the cloud, I've got employees scattered around the country, but they were trained mm. and they're good. I don't want to lose them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have this incredible staff right now. I couldn't be more proud of them. And we're in six states or seven states with employees that have just been with me for years and moved on, but I didn't want to lose them. Great to know. Yeah, I did not know that. So what is the age for filing? Is that a misconception that you have to be 18 if you're filing for SSI? So the answer is the reason, for example, your son was not told to file for SSI before 18 is because you were working. So your income was deemed to him and he wasn't indigent. Once you hit 18, you're an adult, and parents' income is no longer deemed to you. If you're living rent-free, that's considered income. But if you have $50,000 in your IRA, that's not considered to be your 18-year-old child anymore. So assuming they have no assets, they can go ahead and file. What sometimes goofs us up is grandma who gave... um, christening money and put it aside, or bar mitzvah money, or graduation money, and that's been saved. So sometimes we have to work with parents on how to handle those assets to get the child's um, account numbers below $2,000 so they can go ahead and file. And that's also also the the people that, you know, we've talked to over the years. It's it's that fine line of they they want the benefits, but then should this person, these are, these can be young adults. They haven't, they haven't, it's not like they've been working all these years. Should they try to work? You know, you want, you want your, your son or daughter in that case to have structure and have the, um, have the self-esteem, the self-esteem to be earning something. So they'll say, they'll call Jeff Raven part-time, how much can they earn and still apply? So I have a little cheat sheet that I just happened to update today with the 2023 numbers that we email that kind of summarizes those rules. But some of it is more medical, and then some of it is more philosophical. So the first part is medical. You talk to the doctors. If the doctors say, hey, your son is doing a lot better, and he's taking his meds, and he's stable, and he's getting out more, 
yeah, I think he's medically improved. Well, he's going to get terminated if they do a continuing disability review. Somebody has back surgery and it fails, and then they have, say, a revision, and the revision works. They've been on disability, but their pain is gone. Well, they're better, should go back to work, or at least think about it, and the doctor will probably encourage them. On the philosophical side is people should go back to work. I mean, really, this program, even for somebody that's paid in to maximum for four, you know, 30 or 40 years, they're only getting you know three grand, thirty-five hundred dollars a month, and if you've been paying in on a hundred and forty thousand dollar a year income for thirty years, you're not comfortable living on thirty-five hundred dollars a month. And right. the average benefit is about fourteen hundred and fifty. And even on that, on SSDI, it's hard to live. So, the, what I do, and, and what how I, when I give my public presentations, I tell people that we view disability as a time program providing some very basic financial support, securing access to the healthcare system, and then giving people time. Time to treat, time to recover, time to retrain, either through the ticket to the work or other work opportunities and training opportunities, and then ultimately time to return back to the workforce. It's very well said, because I think people interpret it, you know, not across the board, but many as this is just what I'm going to do for the rest of time, is, you know, I have to apply, get approved, and live off this money. And they're they're petrified when I suggest try working because they don't want to have to go through that same terrible process of trying to get approved. Now, they may not have to. There's some ways to avoid that if they go back to work and fail. But typically, I tell them, if you're really doing better and the doctor is on board that you should work, give it a try. I mean... Under SSI, it's the rules I just described. They don't lose their benefits automatically. It's just a reduced benefit based upon how much they're earning. If it's SSDI, they have the nine-month trial work period, and they have another three-year, what they call the extended period of eligibility, which is their safety net if they relapse. So there are some really not really fair work uh, rules. Um, I met with a congressman a few years ago who actually thought he liked the SSI with the phased reduction in benefits better than the cliff that um, SSDI has, and he was going to introduce legislation to try to make that uh, happen for SSDI beneficiaries, but that was going nowhere. Right. And he was Republican, but it, was, it wasn't going to go anywhere. Can you define for our family out there what a payee is? Sure. So... When you deal with people, especially with mental illness, um, and some that have substance abuse histories or um, psychotic histories, they're not very good with their money. And Social Security and the taxpayers have a justifiable interest in making sure that SSI benefits um, are not going to the liquor store or to the drug dealer or are not being spent um, improperly on some boyfriend. So a representative payee is assigned when the Social Security Administration determines that the person cannot properly handle their funds. Then that person is responsible to make sure that the SSI is used for room and board and clothing and a winter jacket and things like that and then has to account for that money uh, when Social Security asks. So we tell the rep payees, 
have the money direct deposited into a bank account, hook up QuickBooks or QuickIn, do everything right out of the bank account. It drops right down into QuickIn. And then when you're summoned to give your statement, just print it out and hand it to them. And assuming that they're using the money appropriately. And you can give somebody 20, 30 bucks a week to spend. I mean, that's right. not improper. They need cigarette money or you know, getting around the town money. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not improper. Um, yes, if the money's being used properly. The improper use is when the bartender is the payee and he takes, you know, 100 bucks for himself and then puts the rest down on the counter and says, here it is, drink what you want, and then hit the streets. And that used to be a major problem. That's far less of an issue um, now than it used to be. They took substance abuse out of the law in 96. And uh, so it's not as much of an issue now as it used to be. I was going to ask you about that. What if somebody has a like dual diagnosis? So the test at Social Security is whether the substance abuse is a material factor in the disability. So if we go back to pre-1996, when I was really actively involved in helping the substance abuse community, um, somebody who was a severe alcoholic or was severely addicted to cocaine can't work eight hours a day, five days a week. So we were able to get them benefits on the condition that they be in treatment. And Social Security was supposed to monitor that they remained in treatment. Well, Social Security didn't do a very good job on that. And 60 Minutes, they actually featured me as the evil guy trying to be a lawyer helping people with drug addicts. Leslie Stahl and I did not see the world the same way. But um, 60 Minutes, Reader's Digest, Wall Street Journal led this whole campaign against giving, we'll use their phrase, giving taxpayer dollars to drug addicts to go out and get high. We viewed it as giving benefits to people who were trying to remain in treatment and trying to improve their lives so that they didn't stay addicted to cocaine or alcohol. Which makes sense. It depends. Yeah, but it makes in, sense to us. But, but then it was, a, again, it was a conservative Congress. It was a Newt Gingrich Congress. And Clinton made a deal, and substance abusers were taken out of the program. So, by the way, were a number of children, and also, a real sad thing, were legal immigrants uh, were taken out of the uh, program. So now an immigrant can only get SSI if they are um, here under grant of asylum um, or as a refugee um, or if they've um, served in the armed forces, and there's a couple of other smaller exceptions. Um, but that was, again, a political change. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, and I think we kind of touched on this before we even started today. The Social Security has issued guidelines in the regulations. They call it the listings of impairments. And they're very specific medical criteria covering lots and lots and lots of different problems. There's listings that cover musculoskeletal problems like bad backs. And there's listings that cover digestive problems and cardiac problems and pulmonary problems. And there's listings for systemic conditions like lupus and, and HIV. And then there's a whole section of listings for mental impairments. And the mental impairment listings, and I'm going to speak sort of 
generally now so that any Social Security lawyers out there don't yell that I'm not being precise. Um, they're generally broken down into an A section, a B section, and sometimes a C section. So the A section is almost never a fight in a Social Security because it just requests that or requires that we have evidence to prove the condition exists. And usually, in fact, in almost every case, Social Security almost never denies the diagnosis. Guy's got a scar four inches down the middle of his back. He had a back surgery. Guy's seeing a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is giving him um, Wellbutrin or lorazepam or some other medication. He's got depression or anxiety. So that's fine. But like we talked about at the very beginning, people with diagnoses work. So the question then is, what is Social Security looking for in terms of the symptoms and their impact in order to award benefits? And there are four questions, only four questions. And anybody that comes to my office and meets with Susan or I and wants to know what I need to prove, uh, how do I need to prove disability for my paranoia, my PTSD, whatever it is, there's only going to be four questions. So let's go through them. And, and highlight them, because this is really important yeah. for um, people with mental illness. First question, what are the symptoms and how are they being documented by the therapist and the psychiatrist, because that's what matters, and what is their impact on this particular person's ability to understand, remember, or apply information? So if I were to say to Nancy, take that book and put it over on the table, would she understand that I've given her a two-step instruction and be able to follow it? Um, this one in typical law practice doesn't come up a lot. This really impacts mostly people with severe learning disabilities, IQs you know, 65 or below, intellectual disabilities or it comes up with psychotic disorders where people don't know, you know, that they're really in Chicago and they yeah. think they're some, so they would have markedly impaired problems there. Typical person that comes to my office, we kind of put that one off to the side and we go to question two. Question two asks, when I read the weekly therapy notes and I read the monthly psychiatry notes, what am I seeing documented about symptoms and their impact on this person's ability to interact with other people? How does she get along with her mom? How does she get along with her dad? How does she get along with her brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews? Does she babysit? Well, babysitting is a lot of stress and interaction. Is she able to go to the grocery store and say, thank you, ma'am? Or does she want to punch out the cashier because she took too long? Does she go to Thanksgiving dinner? Does she go to church? Is she able to talk to people on the internet? Or does she isolate? Does she get into fights? Does she break things? Does she have road rage? If there's nothing in the charts on this, the case is, at least on this point, is rejected. Um, if it's only a mild or moderate problem where she talks about it at some visits, doesn't talk about it at other visits, it's not of major concern to Social Security because you can operate a punch press and curse at that machine all day. The punch press doesn't care. It just right. wants you to push two buttons so it can go womp and make the piece. But if we read those notes and we see that this is what Social Security calls a marked, or to use a better word, severe 
um, problem so that if the foreman were to come by that punch press and say, hey, how are you doing? And that person would take a wrench and throw it at their head. Well, that person would have a hard time sustaining work. That's a marked impairment in social interaction. And they go to question three. Question three asks, what are in the medical charts? What are in the therapy notes regarding symptoms and their impact on concentration, persistence, or pace? How's this person's attention span? Can they watch a TV show? Can they read a chapter in a book and talk about it with their mother? Or do they find they have to read the same chapters over and over again because they weren't really focused? Are they able to follow a recipe and cook a meal? Are they able to cook food? Or do they, does the evidence show they forget and it's burnt on the stove? Or the clothes are left in the washing machine for days? Or I had a woman who kept forgetting to pick her children up from school. And the principal finally called DCFS and filed a complaint because he was having to wait. Um, and they found all kinds of issues with her. So if concentration, persistence, or the ability to maintain work pace is not mentioned in the records because it's not something the client knows to talk about, we lose. If they only talk about it intermittently or sometimes they're okay and sometimes they're not, so it's a moderate impairment, we would lose on that point because it doesn't take a lot of concentration to be on an assembly line, see the piece, pick up the piece, put it in the box. Mm -hmm. But if it's a marked impairment, so they couldn't maintain that all day or they would be easily distracted by things, that's more serious, and Social Security goes to question four. Question four asks, when we read the therapy notes, when we read the psychiatry notes, what is this patient describing in terms of his symptoms and their impact on his ability to adapt or manage himself? How does he deal with stress? How does he deal with change? How does he deal with authority figures? Um, how does he manage his day-to-day -day life? Does he get out of bed every day? Does he shower? Does he shave? Does he walk the dog? Does he make his bed? Does he change his clothes? Does he clean the dishes? Does he shovel the stoop? Does he mow the lawn? If there's nothing, we lose. If it's a mild or moderate problem, not a big deal to Social Security. You don't have to look or smell so good to work in a factory and sweep the floors. If it's a marked impairment, so it becomes clear this fellow would have a hard time showing up to work or dealing with a boss who told him he made, did something wrong, that's a big deal. To qualify for disability or SSI, in most cases, two of those four areas have to be markedly impaired or seriously limited when we read the therapy notes and we read the psychiatry notes. Going back to why I want to get it hired before somebody files their application, we teach this to our families and we even give them tools. Yeah. We give them calendars and actually tomorrow I have a meeting where we're almost finished creating an app. So people, my clients will be able to download it on their phone and put it on their phone each day or each week and then go to the doctor and that's their memory prompt. Um, but it's teaching people the importance of discussing these issues and communicating them every week to the therapist and every month to the psychiatrist. Now, that's not a bad thing because these are all really important functional areas. It keeps it legitimate. I mean, yeah. it's saying that, you know, some people might say, my God, that's like impossible to, I can't do that, but this is, this is keeping the system 
defining it. And I, I mean, even though it does seem very difficult, but it legitimizes, you know, you have to have lines somewhere about this. And it's, it's great that you give people this early on so that they, you know, it's not a game. It's just saying this is the definition. If you need this support, if you need this, these benefits, this is the qualification. So, wow. And in fairness to the government, these are all really important functional areas that I want my clients to improve on. My experience, again, not as a doctor, but just with my own NAMI experience and doing this work, medicines are critical to people with severe psychiatric problems, but only because it keeps them in a safe space. But rarely do medicines cure problems. Therapy really teaches people, this is my reality, here's how I can improve it. So if we can have people focusing on these four areas, they can really improve their day-to-day -day functioning and maybe have a better future and be able to work and sustain so themselves. So now, just to take it from the, um, I'm blocking the phrase they want to use, reality to the incredibly sad, these four are hard to meet. And they, they used to be simpler. And Social Security moved to this because they were able to deny more cases. Well, they like that. So the sad part of all of this is they've taken these four mental health criteria and they now apply them to physical health problems. So somebody with multiple sclerosis is going to have these same four questions. Or somebody with a seizure disorder is going to have these. Or lupus or chronic pain. Somebody with lupus isn't going to a psychiatrist necessarily, but when they come to me early, we right. talk about that this is important, and we teach them how to talk about that with their doctors to try to develop that in the record. A lot of what we do is educate, and what I tell my clients all the time is we're really good in our office in arguing the evidence, but what we cannot do is create it. And the evidence is created the moment you sit down in a doctor's office. And if you don't communicate just what your life is really like, um, number one, you're not going to get good medical care because how does the doctor know what to do? And number two, you're not going to be creating the evidence we need to get you the benefits. I mean, a real common example, work with your average 50-year-old guy who's worked 30 years on a construction site or a truck driver, and he's going to the doctor. He's just a guy. He goes to the doctor. Doc says, how you doing? I'm okay, Doc. How are you? You know, the Bears were great last week. They should have won. And the doctor puts in the chart, well-groomed, nice man says he's okay. And you lose a case. That's happened to me a lot. So we teach our clients not to be an average guy and say, hey, doc, I'm okay, how are you? It's things are really hard, and what right. can you do to help well, me today? Be real. Let's not talk about surface. That's exactly stuff. right. What we tell people is when you go to the doctor, talk about the guy that you see in the mirror because yes. that mirror has no ego. And mm -hmm. if you f talk about his limitations and his frustrations, you might get mad, you might even cry, but you'll be getting better medical care and you'll be creating the record, so it's win-win. And that's why I like doing what I do for a living. Well, I can tell you have such passion for it, and your knowledge is endless. I feel like anyone who walks through your door is, is lucky that they're getting the right 
right education and, and, you know, hopefully down the road, the right benefits that are coming to them. Such, it's, you know, I always knew it's a complicated system. It's, it's really, uh, this is tough, I feel like, to, to prove this. And these are people who are struggling anyway. It's a very difficult situation. But, uh, but you really clarify it so well. I mean, I, I feel like this podcast, this episode will really, really help people in understanding this in, in a way that was very clear. Yeah. For our Behind Our Door family, how do they find you? Um, they can call our office, 847-299-0008. Most people actually find us on the web. It's rkblegal.com, Robert, Kevin, Bob, legal.com. And they can just fill out a form there, and they should just mention that they heard the podcast and then Usually Kelly will get back to them right away, or if not Kelly, Susan or I, and we'll ask some, ask some basic screening questions. Right. Um, and then if we feel that there is a possibility of a claim, then they'll be set up for an interview with either Susan or I. We're doing that on Microsoft Teams mostly now um, with the improvement in technology. Um, we found we don't have to ask clients to drive all the way to one of our offices and sit in an uncomfortable chair. They can just sit on their, at their kitchen table and either uh, on a phone. A silver Yeah. Yeah, so a phone or an iPad or a computer, and we have wonderful conversations, and it saves them a lot of time. And for us, I mean, we had seven meeting locations around northern Illinois, but we really shut them down now because we found in almost every case we can use technology, and if not, we do it over the telephone. Sounds, still sounds like a win-win for people. So, oh, thank you so much. I, I feel like you have shared your precious time with us, and thank you for thank being. You. Well, it's teaming. It's part, being part of the community, and we're mm -hmm. a, a, as a group. I'll speak for every person in my office. We feel very blessed that we can work in the community and share with the medical profession, share with the NAMIs and the MS societies and the Lupus Foundations and wow. all the different groups that are helping people um, and just do our little part to try to give people a chance for a, a safer and better future. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behind our door at mail.com that's behind our door at mail.com and please don't forget to like and share our podcast um leave us a rating tell us how we're doing we really want your feedback it's important to us we are so thankful that you are here and listening to us if you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness you can call the national suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.